Hey fellow nerds, welcome to Research Hole, a podcast where I talk to artists about the research holes we fall down on the way to our projects. I'm Val Howlett, and I'm really excited today to be introducing our guest, who is an old friend um, who used to live in Philly and doesn't anymore, so I'm excited to have the excuse to get to talk to her. It's Julie Lung. By day, Julie Lung is a marketing director at Random House, specializing in sci-fi fantasy books under the Del Rey imprint. By night, she is a children's book author. Her debut series, Mice of the Roundtable, was praised as a winning new adventure by Kirkus Reviews. She is also the author of Paper Sun, the inspiring story of Tyrus Wong, the fearless flights of Hazel Ying Lee, and more. Julie, welcome! Hi, I'm so excited to be on your podcast. I know, I'm so excited to have you. Um, Julie and I used to work at the same publishing house when she was mm-hmm. in Philly. Um, and I remember from there, you would write at night, wouldn't you? You would yes. go home and then write, which was bananas to me because my brain <laughs> my brain goes, like, like it, is, it is not writing all clock after 8 p.m. for me. It's if it feels like another life ago because I'm kind of in the same boat now where I still work my day job. I still work in book publishing and, um, you know, I try to like, you know, get as much time as I can after hours. But yeah, the kid doesn't go to bed at 10 until 10. So um, finding the time to actually write has been very, very tough, um, which is probably why I've been mostly writing picture books since I gave birth. Uh, But um, I've been working on this middle grade um, for quite some time now. Um, In fact, I I think when Val, you came over when I was pregnant, we Val and I spent a week together um, on a writing retreat. I was actually outlining this project back then. So this would have been like two years ago. Um, And I am still trying to sort of, you know, finish this up. Um, It's a sort of historical fiction meets time travel adventure about a girl who um, goes to the different um, Chinese dynasties and like sort of witnesses some of the, um, you know, major turning points firsthand. And I always thought it'd be really cool. I've always wanted to do a project like this because I know so little about Chinese history myself, even though I am Chinese American. a lot of that stuff I had to learn as an adult. And so it was kind of the inspiration behind it was like, I want to research like all these different Chinese dynasties, learn all about them. And in the process, maybe write like a middle grade novel from, you know, a 12 year old's perspective of like falling back through time and kind of almost like Doctor Who, like levels of um, hijinks, like, you know, affecting the course of history so that it is like, you know, corrected in the way that the history books know it. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what I think we're going to talk about today is a little bit of my first book, which is, um, hopefully going to be centered around the Tang Dynasty. Oh my God. That's, I love that so much. And I was so excited when you, uh, sent me that you were going to talk about the Tang Dynasty because I know absolutely nothing, which is embarrassing. (laughs) Like I'm embarrassed (laughs) by my lack of knowledge uh, about Chinese history it's it's a like it's like both my failure and also a failure of the American educational system for sure um but like I'm 36 and I could have learned um so I (laughs) I I feel a little comforted by the fact that you're same I I mean yeah like I had to find all this information on my own so I was not at like a history major by any means before you get to tell me all sorts of things I have like two preliminary questions Mm -hmm. I think One is, was there a moment where you were like, oh, I have to write about the dynasties? Or was there a moment where you wanted to learn about them and then realized there could be a middle grade novel there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what I was really inspired by, it was maybe Mulan. I would say I would start with Mulan, the Disney movie, and um, trying to find out more about the historical figure, which is there's not a lot, um, but there are the Mulan myth and legend is rooted around the Tang Dynasty. And just a little bit of background of why Tang in particular as the first dynasty is, um, you know, when you think about like golden ages of the past um, for Chinese history, that is the Tang. Um, 
it the closest way that I could almost you know this kind of ties into a little bit about like the Ren Fair conversation we were having earlier, which may not make oh wait that was before recording. I'm sorry. No, uh, it's okay. <laughs> we were talking about the Ren Fair because that's a thing you did today. You went to the Renaissance. Fair. Yes, we went to the Renaissance Fair, and you know I consider sort of the Renaissance, you know, to Western culture a little bit of how like Chinese culture might consider the Tang. Like it is sort of that um, sort of mythic, legendary, golden age of Chinese history in which um, everything was kind of at its like best. Like China was um, at its most expansive, most prolific. Um, there are massive amounts of arts and culture that came from that period. It was during the Silk Road when um, China was sort of like the last stop on that road. And block like trade and culture really blossomed. And so I knew I wanted to start there. Um, if only because it's such a, you know, even I knew about the Tang. Like out of all the dynasties uh, that I might have been familiar with, um, I at least understood that the Tang dynasty was a big deal. And it's such a big deal that um, it the word Tang actually figures into how Chinese even think of themselves. Uh, when you when people say Chinatown, um, what the Chinese people say is um, Tong Yan Gai. Uh, which is the people of the Tang's street. And so <laughs> Tang is a big is a big deal. Uh, so I wanted to start there. And, you know, the Tang dynasty lasted centuries. So I was like, okay, I figured it out a dynasty. Now, which part <laughs> of the dynasty do I need to, like, would be the most interesting to talk about? And um, I started off with the founder. And I realized that the level of intrigue within these families that ruled during that time was Game of Thrones level. Uh, and yes. it was so fascinating to me. Um, you know, the founding emperor, um, uh, his, uh, I guess we'll we'll work with his uh, custom names as opposed to his, like they have different, also Chinese people have a lot of different names. Um, so the founding emperor, uh, his, uh, you know, common name, the name that like, he probably referred to himself as was Li Yuan or um Gaozu was his emperor name. He had three sons, and the oldest was uh, Li Jiancheng, and then the middle son was Li Shimin, and the third son was uh, Li Yuanji. And it was this like power struggle between the oldest and the middle son for like most of their lives. And, and it got to the point where the middle son actually murders the oldest and becomes crown prince, and then deposes his own father to become Emperor Taizong which is the Whoa. second um, emperor of the Tang dynasty. But it's, you know, it's crazy because Emperor Taizong, actually, as he grows older, he's actually revered as one of the, you know, most sage, most, um, like, you know, fair emperors of the Tang. Like, he is, like, the model of the, you know, best emperor. So I was fascinated by this idea. I was like, you know, he murdered his older brother to become <laughs> king. Like, how is it that his um, reputation afterwards gets to be, you know, and... I'm sure like lots of things change as, you know, you the people who win get to write the histories and sort of, you know, reimagine their stories. Uh, but it was very interesting to me to sort of see this very legendary figure um, and sort of the betrayals and the intrigue that sort of led to his ability to become emperor. So I was like, that's the spot. There's this um, there's this incident called the Xuan Wu Gate incident, where uh, the middle son, uh, Li Shimin, shoots an arrow killing his older brother. And it's a huge, like, uh, it's a huge kind of historical and pop culture-y, like, it's like been in movies, it's been told and retold in a lot of different ways. Uh, and, you know, I didn't really know about this level of detail of history. And so I kind of started watching all of these sort of historical dramas and there's these really kind of clunky documentaries in Chinese that I found on YouTube that kind of walk through this whole, uh, you know, drama. And that has been what has consumed most of my, uh, most of my time that I'm not, you know, trying to do my day job and raise a two-year-old. Right. Yeah. All that time. <laughs> oh my god that's fascinating yeah I'm also fascinated by I see well I see why you're fascinated by the fact that this is the person who's known as a good emperor um, mm -hmm. so he killed his brother and his father so he killed his older brother and then deposed his father so um, okay. what happened so let me lay out like sort of the incident 
Yeah, like tell the- me a story. <laughs> <laughs> so Lee Shimin was the middle son, and he was sort of the military savant. Like, uh, the Emperor Gaozu, Li, uh, Li Yuan, uh, was rebelled against the former dynasty. And so he kind of took over. And that was in largely part because of his middle son's encouragement and sort of winning all these battles for him to so that he could um, sort of be the founding emperor at the end of the day. So he was kind of this golden child. And whereas Li Jiancheng being the crown prince by virtue of being the oldest was more protected. Like he was a general too, and he was a pretty good general, but not as good as Li Ximin. Um, And so there was always this sort of combativeness between the two brothers where Jian Cheng was always worried that Li Ximin would get too powerful, would it, like because he was so favored with, amongst the military for winning all the time and being such a great leader. And so the older brother would always try to be like maneuvering against the middle brother, like trying to take away his allies, trying to like win favor against, uh, you know, with the with um, the emperor against the younger brother. And then there was his third brother who was always egging the oldest brother on, be like, yeah, like get the middle brother. But <laughs> it turns out the third brother is, brother is interesting because if there is a villain in this story, it is actually the youngest brother who is kind of playing the middle brother and the older brother against each other. And I think, you know, like this is sort of a hinted at as some of the documentaries was that the youngest brother was hoping that the two brother older brothers would just kill each other. And he would just be like, hey, dad, I'm here. Like, make me a crown prince instead. So he's always he's, you know, historically allied with the oldest brother. But I personally think that he was just hoping that both of them would die. And so, you know, the oldest brother had certain allies in court. So the con- emperor, the emperor's concubines were always on the favor of uh, Li, Li Jiancheng, whereas like all the generals and the soldiers would be Li Ximin's. And so they were like, you know, struggling. And the and I think one of the, um, you know, downfalls of uh, Emperor Gaozu was that he couldn't really decide between the two. He So it made it, things worse. Like he he would sometimes like tease that like, oh, Li Ximin, like maybe you should be crown prince. And so I think his indecision really was like, if anything, kind of like the fatal factor in kind of making like keeping these brothers at odds with each other all the time. And it all kind of came to a head when um, so <laughs> Li Jiancheng got rebuked by his father for uh, adding too many people to his personal army because it was a huge thing. Like, you know, the emperor had his army and the sons had their armies, but they kind of had to keep everything in balance. Otherwise, people get a little freaked out by like, hey, why do you have so many people? Yeah. So um, what happened was that uh, Emperor Gaozu actually, for a brief second, like took away the crown prince and gave it to, uh, crown prince title and gave it to Li Ximin. And then at some point... Um, Li Ximin was having a banquet at his older brother's place and got food poisoning. And, you know, everyone was like, oh my God, like Li Jiancheng must have poisoned the middle brother. And that's actually what um, the oldest, that's what um, the, that's what Li Ximin believes and that's what the emperor believed. And so at some point, um, there was all this like back and forth where the emperor was like, oh, maybe like I should just send Li Ximin away to the other city. So, I should also preface that um, at this time during the Tang Dynasty, the capital um, is uh, Xi'an. So, or actually, um, accurately, it was called Chang'an at the time, is current day um, called Xi'an. And Xi'an is famous for the terracotta warriors. It's sort of like further in Western China. Again, like, this is during a time when the Silk Road was everything. Like, that was the main road of transport, of goods. And so the center of civilization really was Western China at the time. Um, places like where my family's from, like Guangzhou and Shanghai, those are like the boonies. That's where people <laughs> got exiled uh, during the Tang Dynasty, is like the south and the, and the desert. And so the world kind of revolved around um, these Western Chinese provinces that were right along the Silk Road. And so um, Chang'an was the um the center of the world for chinese culture for many many years and so there was another capital city called luyang uh that um and again i apologize for people who actually may have better mandarin pronunciations i grew up in with cantonese so my mandarin's not great um but there was a sister city to um chang'an that um li shimin was supposed to be sent away to because the emperor was like i gotta keep these sons away from one another uh and then, of course, like, 
you know, Jen Chang was like, no, don't send him away because if Lee Shimin leaves, he'll probably bring, like, he'll probably amass more followers and fans, and I want to keep an eye on him. Anyhow, there's all this, like, back and forth pettiness amongst the sons. And it got to the point where um, Jen Chang got all of Lee Shimin's um, allies dismissed, or, like, his key friends dismissed from his army, and then got the army, um, basically convinced the emperor to give Li Shimin's army to the youngest brother, Li Yuanji. And so Li Shimin's basically backed into a corner. And he's like, you know, you're taking my army away. You basically tried to poison me. And I have to do something. I can't go on like this. And so um, Li Shimin tells the emperor that, hey, like your your son, your you know, Jen Chang and Yuanji, they've been, you know, hooking up with your concubines. Like, I don't know. And I think Oh shit. Most people believe that this was fabricated. Like there's not a lot to, you know, back this up. But um so so like he tells the emperor this thing, and so the emperor's like, What? <laughs> and summons uh, you know, the youngest and the oldest brother to court to like you know, ask them, like, what what is this accusation all about? So at dawn that day, um, you know, the oldest brother and the youngest brother are traveling to the emperor's um, home or the palace, and they're passing through Xuanwu Gate. And Li Shimin and his men, the men that, you know, had gotten dismissed. So, you know, the emperor had already tried to take away the army, but they secretly were loyal to Li Shimin the entire time ambushed the two brothers and killed them and, and like you know Li Shimin was the one who fired the arrow into his brother and um one of his associates killed the youngest brother and well, it's you know super dramatic them killed both of them broke both brothers dead and then like went to tell the emperor like that um you know you're under my orders now and just power grabbed it and it's so interesting to me because, you know, that sounds pretty awful, right? It sounds like you're the baddie uh, for killing your brothers. Uh, but I think, you know, in these, in the way that like historians try to package it is like, well, you know, if it wasn't, you know, if Li Shimin hadn't done this, at some point or another, Li Zhenzheng or Li Wanji might have killed him. It sounds and, that way from the right. way you're telling it. Like, I mean, if they tried, probably tried to poison him and took away all his men, like. Right, exactly. So, and that's kind of, you know, how I think history tries to portray. Like, because ultimately, Li Shimin is one of the most celebrated emperors of history. Like, and he ruled very justly. Like, he was one of the few emperors during the Tang that sort of tried to crack down on corruption, who really valued sort of science which is uh, and you know during the Tang dynasty like this would have been like you know 620 to 685 you know a lot science was kind of a fairly new thing a lot of people believe like the heavens kind of made everything happen so he was very like you know forward thinking and a lot of the um there was a lot of like religious tolerance during that time like buddhism was new to china as well as um you know, Islam was also coming into China at the time. And uh, Emperor Taizong, you know, Li Shimin's later, you know, emperor name, was very welcoming of a lot of different things because he sort of valued cultural exchange. So there's so many good things about his reign that ultimately people consider it like a good thing that Li Shimin was the one who ended up being the emperor. Um, but one of my favorite spookier stories was that, you know, Li Shimin in his time you know, grew more and more afraid of ghosts. And so he had sort of two men um, stationed outside his bedroom when he slept at all times because he was, a, I mean, A, probably afraid of real-life assassins, but people also, like, you know, said that, like, you know, he, he got more and more fearful of, like, how his afterlife might be or, like, where he would be in his afterlife because he had killed his brother and fratricide was such a, you know, huge taboo back in the day, even for royalty, that... um the two men that ended up guarding his uh, guarding his bedroom became door gods themselves. And so door gods in sort of like Chinese culture are, and people may have seen this in some you know shows, they, they're sort of two images of men that are often plastered on the left side and the right side of a double-sided door. And they're supposed to sort of like guard a house or guard a shrine from evil spirits. And so the two men... Uh, 
ended up being like in local history and local Taoism um, fairly famous door gods. And so there's a lot of um, myth kind of like tied up into the Tang Dynasty and the people who lived during that time. Um, that is absolutely fascinating in my opinion. And so I don't know. It was just a really, really cool uh, a research hole to go tie it all back together to fall down because there's so there's so much um, myth, I think, that is kind of braided into history at this point in Chinese history that, you know, you can have witches, you can have gods, you can have sort of uh, immortals at the same time with historical characters. Um, it's as close to like sort of writing like about Arthurian legend, which is what my first middle grade series was all about as I can. Um, but, you know, this time something that's, you know, intimately close to culture that I grew up around. Well, door gods are, it, they're depicted in art. So these two men were depicted in like art around doors or like actually yeah. around doors of people's houses. Yeah, so they um, they're typically um, pa- like plastered uh, paintings. So they would be like, uh, two prints that you might tape up to your doors as a way of sort of um, fighting off any bad juju or evil spirits that might come into your home. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating. Fascinating, And it makes sense that he was afraid of ghosts. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I also, you know, and like historians will also say, like, you know, maybe the reason why Lee Shimin was so, like, was so worried about being a, like seen as a good emperor was that he was always worried that people would think of him poorly because of how he got his power you know the fact that he killed his oldest brother the fact that he basically took power forcibly from his father um to become emperor like it's maybe you know people speculate that he had a chip on his shoulder that he always wanted to prove himself you know to the public that he deserved this uh, this power that he kind of pulled for himself that makes sense. I mean, do you know, like, is there recording, uh, like, in historical movies or things? Like, do you know how the father reacted when he marched in? He was like, okay, I killed both my brothers, so it's me you're stuck with now. Like, <laughs> like what, what did dad do? Yeah, I, th- you know, and that's the, you know, that's the super interesting thing um, with Emperor Gaozu is that he kind of, was resigned about it. Like there's no, there's no like firsthand recorded history of, of their like thoughts or anything. Right. But the fact that like he had given up fairly easy, um, you know, what historians feel is that like he just wanted to prevent bloodshed. And maybe that was also why he kind of always flip flop between the two brothers. You know, like he was trying to appease both and trying to keep the peace, but in sort of moving favor back and forth, he kind of made it worse. And so when, you know, Lee Shimin was the one who ended up being the one to survive, um, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of historians feel that, like, at that point, Emperor Gaozu felt very deflated. Like, you know, a lot of his um, willpower and his, you know, I wouldn't say joy because that's kind of hard to, you know, actually say, you know, this is right. definitely what happened. But he decided to sort of take a step back from, you know, active um, ruling and gave all that power to Li Shimin to do um, as if he sort of like resigned himself to his fate. Like, this is what I get for, you know, trying to keep um, both my sons happy and you end up, you know, causing bloodshed. Um, and then it's funny, too, because the same thing. A similar thing happens with Lee Shimin's sons. No. Uh, yeah. And this I'm not I'm a little more shady on because it's not necessarily part of my main research. It's sort of something I just happened to discover as I'm reading further down the Wikipedia, is that um a a similar thing happens where Lee Shimin has three sons, they're all struggling for power. And at some point, um, the middle son ends up getting the oldest son exiled to the desert. And then the oldest son dies in the desert. And I think the, and I, I want to say the middle son, and, I, and someone will have to double check me, ends up becoming emperor. So it's just, um, it's fascinating because it all feels so Game of Thrones. It feels so like, you know, power corrupts, power pulls family apart. And uh, I think it's such a, you know, dramatic place to kind of insert my you know character into because I just think it's such a fun not fun but just like a 
a momentous place to witness history. And, uh, you know, my main character is going to be an Asian American girl who's like, you know, learning, you know, some martial arts. And her parents are, um, I've, I've made them curators and restorers at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so they are coming into contact with a lot of interesting Tang artifacts. And so one of the artifacts just happens to be, you know, magical. Um, yeah, it and does. <laughs> of course it does, right? And it goes missing and her parents go missing. And um, oh my gosh, I guess I should even walk this back further. You know, you were asking me like, what was the first I like uh, idea of writing something like this? It wasn't even my wish to understand Chinese history because that's always been in my brain. But I was reading very interesting articles about um, art thieves and in particular um, Chinese art thieves that were taking things from Western museums and there was a theory that the Chinese government was actually behind it because there's a large conversation about what do you do with a lot of these things in Western museums like the British Museum and the yeah. Metropolitan Museum of Art that is actually like loot. Like it's yeah. actually from um, a lot of the artifacts in these museums come from a time when the British actually um, invaded China during the Qing Dynasty. You know, that's um, also hopefully a future book um, where I explore the Qing Dynasty, which is the last dynasty to rule and the last empress um, who had to flee the palace um, in Beijing as the British came in and t basically took a bunch of stuff out of the palace and took it back home. And these are pieces that end up, you know, at the British Museum. And China, as it's rose into power, has kind of tried to take back a lot of those artifacts, um, you know, usually through, you know, proper overtures. But um, at some point, um, some of the pieces were going missing. And I forget which pieces in particular were like big enough to make the news. Uh, but the re that was actually the original spark was um, reading the story and thinking like, oh, I wanted to talk like about history. And I also wanted to talk about it through a lens of Chinese Americans. And so I have this main character whose parents are a restorer and curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they disappear with like these Tang Dynasty artifacts. And so the Im immediate suspicion is that like, are your parents like art thieves, you know? And uh, so she's sort of like on this quest to prove the police wrong. Like her parents like, you know, wouldn't do this kind of thing. And so she discovers that what's happening is that the artifacts has sent them back in time. And so she's uh, having to find them uh, by traveling through the different dynasties. And so this is in my brain is like a series and I'm gonna start with the Tang Dynasty. I know I wanna go to the Qing Dynasty after this. And then maybe by third book, I would love to do the Ming Dynasty, which is um, the 1400s. And when that's kind of when um, China's um, coastal cities kind of become a bigger part of the history. Right now, during the Tang, it's the early 600s. So everything's tied to the Silk Road. So there's really not a lot happening along the coast. But then um, what happens is um, nautical trade becomes a huge, a bigger deal in, in world uh, politics uh, after um, a while as ships get better and so then you start seeing the port cities coming into more power and more influence in the course of history so it's great I can't I really can't wait to do this but you know finding time is really hard and then there's just so much to learn um, beyond just this like one little microcosm of history like there's just like a lot of opportunity to explore like a million other like big moments of Chinese history that I don't think a lot of, you know, American audiences would know. I don't know that anyone knows what Shuan Wu Gate incident is um, unless you happen to be um, someone who took Chinese history or, um, you know, found out just doing your own research. Yeah. I mean, as you're telling this story, I'm like, what an amazing, first of all, what an amazing way for kids to learn history like it's it's the wrong age group for sure, but it makes me think about the Magic Treehouse, which like it was it was after my time, like my generation. But my little brother and like kid sister loved those books, and like <laughs> you know th there was there were some like little t I mean they're chapter books, they're tiny, but like 
there are some little historic elements that like get alluded to in those books and yeah and I mean I always liken the magic tree house to like the tar- is a TARDIS like you know it's yeah a you're right for it little is a TARDIS <laughs> I went to so many holes, Val. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. You, like, you seem so knowledgeable. Um, and I know you would say you aren't because most researchers say that. Um. I mean, yeah, compared to an academic, I'm probably I'm probably already making plenty of mistakes. But, um, you know, I did the history piece, but then I also kind of fell down this um, research into Taoism and uh, religion and myth and uh, how the eight immortals uh, – which uh, again, it's so funny because I ended up discovering a lot about my my own personal history too. So the eight immortals are almost, are almost this like pantheon of demigods um, that are worshipped uh, by a lot of Chinese people. And I did not know that uh, one of the mortals, uh, my family, my my dad's side of the family, had adopted as their own. And so I like I and my dad when I was trying to you know talk about this project to my dad. A, my Chinese isn't great. And so I'm like trying to explain in elementary school years uh, in terms. But he was like, oh, yeah, the eight immortals. Like, you know, you have a patron immortal, you know, like our family. Uh, my grandmother back um, ha- had a stillbirth, you know, like as her firstborn. And so she like visited this, uh, you know, mystic shaman person in the local village when, you know, in the you know not 30s when this happened. And that person said, like, you need to pray to Lu Dongbing, um, one of the eight immortals. And so ever since then, like, the family had adopted this immortal as their own. And so my father actually carries a photo of him around, and he actually sent a photo to me. So I put him on my shrine. And so it was great to sort of see, like, oh, like, I do have a personal stake in all of these um, histories and these uh mythologies that I'm researching I just didn't know it because I never really thought to ask and so in a lot of ways it felt it lately it's felt like I'm bridging a lot of um unknown territory right was your did you grow up Taoist in any other way or that the immortal that your family has um is just the one element of Taoism that you grew up with you know this is a very complex question, I think, for me to answer because my parents grew up during the 1960s in China, um, during the Cultural Revolution, in which a lot of religion was banned. Like even um, Taoism um, and uh, Christianity, like everything was ba- uh, banned under uh, the communist regime. And so if you ask my parents, they wouldn't say that they re- are religious because of their upbringing. But what we do do a lot of is ancestor worship, which is a form, mm-hmm. I would say, I mean, I might class that, I might like um, group that under Taoism, though I'm sure someone who studied religion would be like, eh, 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 like, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but we do a, t- a lot of ancestor worship in the sense that um, we burn money for them during um, the holiday. Like there's this holiday called um, Qingming, which is basically like grave um, cleaning day. You like go to all your grave, all of the graves of your family. You clean them up. You burn paper for them, um, and you so you burn paper money. Um, and so the I, the concept is that like you know all your ancestors live on in the afterlife, kind of um, influencing the affairs of the living. So you want to appease them. You want to make sure that they're happy. So you put out food for them. You burn incense. You burn money, and you burn. Um, you know, if you really want to get fancy about it, you can burn like paper houses, paper cars, paper iPhones. There's this whole industry, cottage industry of paper goods that you burn for the dead. Is the idea that if you burn the iPhone, they get an iPhone in the afterlife? Yes. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go to some, uh, if you go to like Asian supermarkets or there are actually some, if you actually go to some Chinatowns in some um, parts, um, will have actually dedicated stores selling you know, goods for the dead. Uh, they have like you know Gucci bags, and Louis Vuitton like <laughs> furniture or not furniture, but Louis Vuitton like you know uh, goods that you can burn for your uh, your ancestors. Yeah. And the idea is that it, you know the smoke goes up into the heavens, and so they're like being sent whatever it is that you've burned. Um, you know, I one of the things that. You know, my grandfather um, on my mother's side um, died during the Cultural Revolution. So he died um, when my mother was young. And so she's, she carries a lot of trauma about that. 
And so she's like, you know, she's burned um, writings of her own to send to my grandfather to read, which I find extremely touching um, that she does that. Uh, But yeah, she like, you know, she'll take them to the grave and sort of like, it's almost like a letter, I would say, to like, you know, your, um, her to her father. It's a fascinating way to uh, look at those loved ones who have passed on. Uh, the this idea that they are very close to you, always watching you in in a good way, like looking after you. Um, but it, you know, also they need to be you know looked after in return by the living, uh, making sure that you're taking care of them. And so, in and I've adopted you know in my old age <laughs> a lot of a lot of these practices, um, if only because I I do want to impart some of that to my son, uh, who's you know he's going to be half Chinese and. I always have this anxiety that he's that's the part that's going to be easiest to lose because we don't live, you know, we live in America where the, you know, the Western culture will be more dominant. And I, for one, am much more whitewashed than I would say um, a lot of, you know, than, you know, some people who might have grown up in like, you know, tight knit communities and I didn't. So, yeah, I like want to retain as much of that knowledge and um, those customs so that can pass on to him. So I've I've taken to sort of um, doing that, and also you know taking and so I, I now have a photo of um, Lu Dongbing who is like our patron immortal I guess, and uh, a little statue of Buddha, and a um, a statue of uh, uh, Guan Yin who is the goddess of mercy, and the beautiful thing about Chinese religion is that Buddhism and Taoism, even though they're very separate and they technically shouldn't touch, you know, are blended very seamlessly in um, religious practices. Like you can be half Buddhist, half Tao, Taoism, and it, and people don't blink an eye. Like there's no sort of, um, you know, I would say like, you know, with certain Western religions, it's like they kind of build up walls. Like you don't, you know, you don't touch this. You know, that like you're one doctrine and one doctrine only. And that doesn't necessarily exist in Chinese um religious practices like you basically they're in a lot of Taoism stories like Buddhist gods end up showing up what I've kind of um, built up in my head for the main character Holly is that she's she's very Americanized look Holly's always sort of trying to figure out um, where does she belong in this exchange of cultures and like her ability to like not really understand but the fact that she doesn't know much about Chinese history is sort of like one of the reasons why like I wanted this character to like learn from a first person perspective um but through that journey I'm like she kind of understands that she is a bridge like she is a person who can take like the Americanizations that she has um but also marry it to her history and marry it to like the things that she's lost in the in the immigration process and this is a very personal topic for me, obviously being a second generation uh, person who my parents immigrated and I've always felt a little lost. I've always felt like, you know, I'm m- misplanted, if that makes any sense. Like, oh, I really like I really should have been a Chinese person, but my parents <laughs> decided to plant me over here. And so I feel like I'm maybe in a weird climate. This is kind of meta in the sense that I'm doing all this research. I'm learning all this stuff for the first time ever as a 30 something about the history that, you know, prior to my parents' immigration would have been my history. You know, like my family can trace their roots like 20 generations in China. (laughs) Like there's this like... There's this shrine in my father's village in, um, so they're from a tiny little area outside of Guangzhou uh, called um, Gongmun. And there's this little shrine and there's like lists of a million leongs. There's like, and, and they, can, they can trace it all the way back to the per- first person who came down to that village from somewhere in North China. I, if I went back to China today, I couldn't, figure out where to go I would have to find a translator or my parents would have to take me back to that shrine and so like so much of you know my personal history just feels a little cut off um me and my cousins who grew up here we like you know we can't go back like we can't go there's no sense of ownership of that place in the way that my parents when they think about home they still consider that village home 
you know, or my cousins who live in Hong Kong still would consider like their our ancestral place that place. And me and my cousin Donna were like, we've been back five times. Yeah, I was going to ask if you've ever been to that village yourself. Yeah, I, I go back every four years or so, and it's, ex- ex- and extremely awkward because right. it doesn't belong, it doesn't belong to me. But I know it belongs to me by blood, it, but it doesn't feel like it does. And so, you know, writing Holly in this manner of like, you know, you have this rich history, you have this rich story that you don't know about, but she's able to kind of go back and sort of experience it. Um, is almost cathartic in my sense and that like, I kind of wish that I could be a little more closer knit to my Chinese heritage um, in a way that like it is harder for me to reclaim it after so many years of separation, you know? Yeah, I mean, in a way you're doing it, right? Like trying I mean, you're, very you're, much. You're not physically <laughs> going going back in time exactly, but you're, you're kind of are. Um, yeah. I'm excited for the kids who will one day get to read the book because the history is so juicy. Yeah. I mean, I say this a lot, but I always feel like I'm writing for my younger self. Um, but it's it's so tough, like having a kid, having a day job. Um, and I want to do this right. And I think that the research piece has been this, the struggle because, you know, I talked a little bit about authenticity. I worry so much about authenticity in this in this respect because I am learning myself. I am... You know, I'm, I'm, I watch as much Chinese dramas as I can to, like, get a sense of, like, the period and, like, what would they be wearing, how they would, you know, talk to each other. But I'm still kind of a stranger to it all. I am, I am no Chinese historian. And I worry off very much, like, you know, if I feel like an outsider to my own culture, what right do I have to be the person telling the story, right? And then I think about someone who never thinks about that kind of stuff at all and writes it anyway. And I'm like, be more like that person. Don't (laughs) let that hang you up. Like plenty of people do not worry about whether or not they're being authentic. They just write the damn story. Um, And that's what I try to remind myself whenever I get a little doubtful of like, am I the right person to write this? Um, (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, I think... I, I relate so hard to that and also have like m- so much respect because, you know, I'm I'm writing historical fiction too, but it's set in 1913. It is not set hundreds and hundreds of centuries before. <laughs> um, but I hope that there would be a little bit of freedom in that too because like there's no way to know, right? That there, that's actually pretty true. Like, you know, there is, um, you know, there's like agreed upon things that historians will say, like this is, you know, how they dress, this is how they, you know, talked. But um, the Tang Dynasty is a very, like, <laughs> it's become such a large and in charge dynasty in the popular imagination. Um, and so there is, I think, room for me to sort of play around. Um, in the in the way that someone might play around with Arthurian legends. So if you ever like watch like a lot of the Chinese dramas, like they do take liberties, and that actually gives me some peace of mind too. That like you know people rewrite and rethink and reimagine a lot of this stuff um, to the point where like if I added my own take on it, it wouldn't necessarily be like you know sifted through with a fine tooth comb by historians. <laughs> <laughs> and again, for me. I also reassure myself by saying, like, I'm not necessarily giving you, like, a, giving a child, like, the authoritative, like, definitive history of, you know, Li Yuan and Li Ximin's uh, reign. I'm just starting off a idea, you know. I'm I'm giving you the top line story so that one day later on you can sort of do your own research and get all the like details of the truth and the false, like, and that or not truth and false, but the truth and what I've taken liberty with to make a good story if you julie if you'd be willing to share a few like links or anything um totally put them in the show notes so if you want to learn more uh or have questions like that's a place you can go and check it out more than happy to i have a lot of links (laughs) (laughs) okay so now it's time for something i learned this week This woman, Katie Mulski, wrote in two facts, and one I shared last 
season, and I wanted to share the other fact this season. Um, so here we go. This is from Katie Mulsky. Last night we watched The Mummy. And there's a <laughs> – wait, wait. Have, I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm already so excited. Have you ever seen The Mummy? Uh, the Mummy was so formative to my middle school self. Really? We're, we're talking about the Brendan Fraser, yes. Rachel Weisz. Yes. Yes. That one. Yes. Yeah. Do it. Tell me, tell me the tell me the fact. I also have seen The Mummy as – I think may, maybe I saw it as a teen, but I did not remember it. But Carmen – like you, the mummy was very formative <laughs> for her. I think part of it for Carmen was, um, I like Carm. I'm like fully lesbian, and Carmen is bi, um, and was deeply attracted to Brendan Fraser, um, <laughs> but also was attracted to the librarian character. Um, yes, you know, so there, there's like good bi energy Evie. she claims in that movie. Um, oh, there's so much bi. <laughs> I, I, w- I would say, yeah, like I like both. Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser, equal amounts of attractiveness. But then also, like, um, the evil baddie, uh, Emo, Emota, is that his name? Yes, I think Emota. so, I think so. And 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 then his um, lady love and knocks in a moon, like, also extremely hot. There's just so much hotness going on. And then there's this um, desert dude, uh, oh, God, uh, what is his name? Uh, also extremely attractive, Just just a parade of hotties. Um, and the story is so simple and goofy enough that, like, as a, like, 13-year-old, you're just, like, blown away Totally. It's, like, dumb, but so fun. Yes. Yeah. And it's full of, yes, it's full of sexual energy. Okay, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so last night we watched The Mummy, and there's a scene where Brendan Fraser threatens someone by holding their head up to a ceiling fan. I don't remember this. Do you remember this? Yes, this is Benji, the like weird snivelly dude who's like always like ba- like betraying the the hero. Right, the racist character. Yeah. yeah. Was he racist? He probably was, but yes. <laughs> I only saw it as an adult, so I feel I feel like I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I think there was there was one guy and he was like one of the few brown guys in the party and like he was not portrayed very well. Um, but anyway, uh yeah, there's yeah, scene- it's the nine like the nineties. What can you do? Yeah, it's the yeah. fucking yeah, it's, it's the garbage <laughs> decade. There's a scene where Brendan Fraser threatens someone by holding their hand up to a ceiling fan, and I said a ceiling fan wouldn't really hurt you, which led us down. I'm assuming this is Katie and her spouse, which led <laughs> us down a small research hole about the history of ceiling fans. There's an LA Times article that includes first of all claims they originated with the hand-operated by servants punka fan in the 17th century India, even though Wikipedia says that the punka fan has been around since 6th century BCE, dot, dot, dot. Okay, mm. so it's like, so Katie's learning about the first fans. <laughs> um, so the LA Times journalist was probably counting when white people started using them. The LA Times article is from 1997, so pre-Wikipedia. Not sure if that makes it better. In 1886, a gun manufacturer invented a water-powered ceiling fan that took off. And in the 1890s, electrical ceiling fans were introduced, though at the time people were mostly thinking of electrical current being for lightning. It was mostly used mm. in factories and hotels. I would have, oh. honestly, I would have guessed later. Like, 1890s feels a little early to me. That's cool. Yeah, this there's this wonderful board game called um, Timeline. This sounds like a question from one of those, where uh, it's the one that, the version that we have is just like a series of inventions, like the fridge and the, like, um, I don't know, like the printing press or whatever. And then you have to, like, guess, like, place the cards in order and then who like and then you flip them to see like what the actual year of invention was. This sounds like one of those questions where it's like, whoa, like this sounds like something that would have been invented like at this time, but actually was like way earlier. Um, so it ended up being that, but, but were feeling ceiling fans actually dangerous enough to hurt somebody? Was the question right? That's a great yeah. So let's see. She says, in 1920s, they became popular for home use. The Depression slowed that down until the 40s. Central AC slowed popularity in the 50s and 60s. And the oil embargo of 73 kicked it off again. It even Mm. includes a tip to put furniture polish on top of fan blades. The decreased 
friction makes dust collect more slowly. And of course, you can change fan direction in summer and winter to maximize benefit, which I always forget to do. Instructions explanation here. Okay, so so Katie got sidetracked, as we all do. <laughs> She didn't learn whether the ceiling fan would really hurt you, ultimately. <laughs> but she did learn a ton about the history of the ceiling fan. That's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see, like, versions of, like, this, the fan, a- automatic fan working with, like, almost like a, like, I could totally see someone coming up with sort of, like, a water wheel situation where the wheel turns the fan and all you really need is just, like, gears that interlock. Like, yeah. that doesn't seem hard to me. That seems like someone could have thought about this, you know, pre-electric use. But then whether or not, like, you know, like like a lamp-powered and, like, oil-powered electric ceiling lamp actually was popularized, like, that's a good question. I'm so glad I got the mummy question because I was so obsessed with the mummy. Like, there are just so many good one-liners. And the idea of, like, a librarian as a, he- like, you know. She's like, I'm not a something. I'm a librarian. I'm a, yes. And then she, like, hits someone with something. <laughs> it's amazing. Occasionally, I'm also like, take that, Bainbridge scholars. Like, when <laughs> I, like, achieve something that someone second-guessed. I don't know. It's uh, it's iconic. I love that movie so much. <laughs> um, Yeah, and listeners, if you'd like to share something you learned this week, either while researching a project or just living your life, email me at researchholepodcast at gmail.com. I may read it in a future episode. Um, So, Julie, we talked a bunch about a project you're working on that people can't read yet. Um, mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I did read the names of some books that you have written that people can read. So where can people find you and like find your work? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram at um, jleungbooks, J-L-E-U-N-G books. And um, my next uh, picture book, which hopefully will come out sometime next year, um, it's called The Truth About Dragons, and it's uh, kind of a love story to my son, who will be growing up with um, Chinese culture and Westernized culture. And I have this like you know fun little idea of like a little boy who wants to know what type of dragon is his, because um, Asian dragons and Western dragons are very different. <laughs> and you know, so like he's going on a quest to like find the truth about dragons and you know surprise the story is that both dragons are true and he has access to both worlds so yeah that's um you know being illustrated now by the talented hannah cha and hopefully we'll be in bookstores um in a year or so oh man I can't wait to see all the different kinds of dragons together. I I know. Like being a science fiction fantasy nerd, I'm also like, dragons! <laughs> I want to see dragons! <laughs> so cool. Okay, so everyone, go look Julie up. And Julie, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Even just having this conversation has like lit another fire under my butt. So I'm going to take this energy and <laughs> try to write some more good you gotta get that story written it's 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 an important one (laughs) okay you just listened to research hole i'm val howlett our music is by joey howlett our logo is by leah felicity lucci goodbye